morning, I have the privilege of finishing our series on Amos, and it has been an great and interesting look at God's generosity and judgment. And out of character for me, you each have a sheet of paper on your chair, hopefully, um, or there are some around you. And if you don't, we'll have some available afterward in here. Um, and we're going to be doing a recap of Amos quickly. And then we're going to press forward into looking at God's judgment and reconciliation. The reason that I have a handout for you guys is because we're going to cover a lot of territory today fairly quickly and unpack an argument or what I think scripture reveals about God's justice and reconciliation, about his judgment. And this is important territory because when we start talking about the judgment of God, it's important we know what we're doing and that we don't leave confusion and so because we're covering a lot of territory, you have this, you can take it home with you, unpack it later, reference it during my sermon today, if you would like to follow along, it's there. I also am not going to have scripture on the screen because we're jumping around a fair amount, so, and you have the references on that sheet, so if you want to get out your Bible or phone to follow along, you're welcome to, or you can just sit back and listen and let the Lord highlight his word to you today. Amos. Amos was an Old Testament prophet. So if it's your first time here, also welcome. And you're not out of luck coming in at the tail end of a series. You're actually in luck because we're recapping and then moving forward. So you're great if you weren't here for all of this. Amos was an Old Testament prophet. He was actually a farmer, and uh, the Lord gave him a message for Israel, and he wrote it down and showed up with it, and uh, Israel didn't like it very much, because it starts off with um, the shepherd Amos's words of God's judgment on the surrounding nations around Israel, and they liked that because they were at war with most of them, and Amos walks through and calls out the iniquity of the surrounding nations. He calls them out for war crimes, slavery, tyranny, injustice, violence, treaty violation, and even one nation's uh, propensity to harm pregnant women for greedy gain. We see God judging these evils, calling them out, and the Lord is holding these nations to account for violating what is good and perpetrating what is evil. These nations don't even have the law of God, but they have nature, and they can see that naturally what they were doing was wrong. God judges this evil because he is good. Sometimes his judgment it, uh, takes a little while uh, because he's judging whole nations and whole societies here. It's not that he brings down the rod of judgment on every individual act or atrocity that happens, but as these atrocities build up in these nations over time, he brings his judgment to bear and resists and uh, works against the evil that occurred there. And so the first chapter... 
Israel's like, yeah, great. Those people are abhorrent, awful people. Let's judge them. They've done terrible things. But then he continues and calls out, and the thrust of the letter is not directed at the general evil of Israel's neighbors, but the thrust of the whole argument is, and the whole letter and prophecy is against Israel themselves. This caught them off guard. Wait a minute, we're God's special people. We have a covenant with him. He's revealed himself to us. How could judgment come against us? Our false prophets are even saying everything is fine. That's my self-righteous voice. But God levies this powerful judgment against Israel. And as we're going to see today in Amos 9, he actually declares the destruction of the nation for their iniquities. So we're going to look at that. God's judgment on Israel, we're going to actually just look at what he, what he says at the end. At 9.8, he says, The eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Except that I won't utterly destroy the house of Jacob, because he's going to bring about his promises through that. But he says, I'm going to shake them out like one shakes a sieve, and all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword which that is an incredibly hardcore judgment. He prophesies destruction of the nation of Israel, destruction of God's very own people. Why is God's judgment against Israel harsher than his judgment against the other nations? The other nations have judgment, but most of the judgment of the other nation falls on their unrighteous leadership and falls on like their military installations. But God's judgment against Israel falls on all the people, and it is this massive reckoning. So why? I think there's two reasons. First of all, on Amos 3.2, God says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Israel had something going for them that the other nations didn't have. And that is a relationship with the justice-loving God of the universe, the creator of all things. They had a relationship with him. And out of that relationship, they should have known better. In fact, they did know better. They had something, which is part two of this argument. They had something that the other nations did not have. They had his covenant. They had the laws of God. They had his way of being in the world for justice and righteousness. And so they literally should have known better. And not only that, but God's covenant with Israel was for a purpose. It wasn't just random. He didn't just like, here's some laws, don't screw up or I'm going to judge you. He gave them his covenant for a reason. And the reason that God gave a covenant to Israel is so that a people group could display the righteousness and justice and welcome of God for all nations. See, in um, Isaiah 46, we have this view of 
what Israel was supposed to be doing and what, how it was supposed to play out. The house was literally supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. That, <clears throat> let me see, I'm, I'm throwing this one in randomly and so I don't have it underlined. So it'll take me just a second. Well, that's what I get for going off script. But he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. The idea is that Israel was supposed to be manifesting the righteousness and goodness of God. That they were supposed to be living in a way that when the nations would come past, they'd say, what is different about these people? How much justice there is in the land? How much prosperity is here? How good is this that there are righteous laws and judgments that stand up for those without power? This nation looks different from the rest of the world that exploits the weak and exploits the stranger and harms the weak for their own exploitation. This is different. And then the temple in Israel was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations so that when people came through and said, wow, there's something amazing happening here, they actually had an opportunity to go in to the presence of God and commune with the living God and begin to know him, to go into the house of prayer for all nations. But that's not what was happening. What was happening in Israel was not covenant fulfillment. It was covenant breaking. They were worshiping other gods, and then they were living out the kind of life that comes with worshiping false gods. They were exploiting the poor. They were racistly keeping other people out of the temple. They were trading in human beings. There was unrighteous scales that they were using where they were doing unjust things in their economy. They were harming the weak and the poor instead of helping them. They were living in the opposite of God's covenant. They were actually working against the purpose of God's people, which was to display what God was really like. And instead, they were displaying what all the false gods are like, full of injustice and hatred and exploitation. And the thing about God's covenant is that it comes with promises that when Israel, had they kept his covenant, they had a huge number of blessings. In Deuteronomy 28, we see where it's like, you don't keep my covenant and it will go well for you in the land. You'll have economic prosperity. Your crops are going to flourish. Your families are going to flourish. Your enemies are going to be kept at bay because God backs his people. God puts his force and power behind his people. And he wants to accomplish this mission of bearing his good image in the earth so that all nations, every people group can come and know him. But it also came with promises or curses that says, if you don't follow through on this, if you don't keep my law, if you don't bear out my image among the nations, then it's not going to go well for you in the land. That in fact, it's not going to rain very much and your crops are going to not do well and your enemies are going to come in and my hand of blessing is going to be removed from your people and it's going to be really difficult. And so what we see in Amos 
And what we see God doing in declaring the end of the kingdom of Israel is contract enforcement. That for a long time, he wrestled with his people and struggled with his people back and forth saying, come back, come back, come back to the covenant, come back to justice, come back to right worship, get rid of your idols, get rid of this false worship, get rid of the injustice and exploitation, come back to me. But finally, in Amos, he says, it's done. The nation is over. I'm ending this. I am affecting my judgment. I'm declaring destruction on this people. So have a great Sunday. Just kidding. But what I love about God is that even as he is declaring destruction, and even as he is enforcing the hard part of his covenant, there's hope. There's hope when he says, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. There's hope that he's leaving a remnant of his people to bring about his promises. And then there's hope in 9, 11 to 15, because God promises a restoration of David's kingdom. He says, on that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old in order that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this. He's saying here that he's going to reestablish the kingdom of David, which is the picture of righteous reign and rule in Israel, the best picture of what Israel looked like, to, to show all the nations, to welcome all the nations who are called by his name into worship under the king David. And then he continues and he says, the time is surely coming, says the Lord, when the one who plows shall overtake the one who reaps and the treader of grapes, the one who sows the seed and the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be plucked up out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord. And so then something else cool is happening here. This is agricultural language about like sowing and reaping and, and winemaking. But what this is, is this is alluding to the blessings of the covenant. This is alluding to the fact that God is going to restore the kingdom of David and he's going to bring the blessings that come with the covenant to his people. And it also says something interesting. In this restoration, God does some things and his people do some things. God restores the fortunes of his people and he plants them on their land. But the people rebuild, the people plant vineyards and the people tend gardens. The people of God participate in, the rest, in God's restoration. So they're involved in the process, which is cool. So that's great. And this was good and it's alluding to a restoration but how does that restoration actually come? That restoration and the establishment of David's kingdom actually comes in the person of Jesus. And so we're going to look at that. 
going to look at what this restoration means. This restoration comes in Jesus, and he brings a new covenant. So instead of the old covenant that rests on God's people's ability to keep God's commandments, there's a new covenant that doesn't. The new covenant rests on the person of Jesus Christ for a few reasons. First of all, because Jesus perfectly fulfills the role of Israel. You remember Israel as God's covenant people was supposed to display to the nations what God is really like and show people the wonder of God's mercy and love and justice and welcome. It was supposed to display a reality that was different than the systems and kingdoms of the world. And Jesus does that. Scripture tells us he is the image of the invisible God. That Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. That he displays God's unbroken nature and shows us how to operate as God does. He was sinless. He did not do anything wrong personally, but he also wasn't participating in brokenness. He did not misuse his power. Scripture tells us that Jesus did not account equality with God. That means the most powerful being in the universe. Equality with God. He did not account it as something to be exploited. He did not use his power for his own gain. He did not use it to secure his own position. He did not use it to seek his own comfort. He did not use it for his own glory. But he used that power properly. He used it to save people's life. He did not account equality with God as something to be exploited, but gave himself up to death, even death on a cross, so that we might be saved. He used his power for the sake of others. He perfectly demonstrated what God was like. On the cross, he made a way for us. Not only did he display what God was like, but on the cross, he made a way. He made a way to turn us loose from the bondage to the law of sin and death. He broke us free from living under the curse of our inability to keep God's perfect law. In Galatians, it shows us in Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, as cursed as anyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The one who is righteous will live by faith. The law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, whoever does the works of the law will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So what Paul is telling us here, and what we see in this Amos passage, is that 
what's missing in the restoration passage in 9, when it talks about God's restoration after the destruction of Israel, what is missing is curses, and what is present is blessing. And so the curses are fulfilled somewhere, and the blessings are brought through the law. And what this passage in Galatians tells us is that Jesus himself became the curse for us. He took the curse of the law, the curse of the covenant on himself, that he bore the penalty for unrighteousness in his body. He bore the penalty of our failing and inability to keep the law. He took it on himself so that everyone, all nations, ethnos might be able to live in his blessing that he literally made the way for us on the cross he demonstrated what God was like and he made a way for us to be free from living under the curse and into a relationship with God Paul further works this out in Romans in 7. He says, but now, 7, 6, but now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive. So we are not slaves under the old code, but slave in the new life of the spirit. We're no longer slaves to the law, but we live in a new reality of the spirit of God. In Romans 8, Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to deal with sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the, on the flesh, on things of the flesh, on what we can do in our own strength and power. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. To set the mind on flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For this reason, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But as Christians, you're not of the flesh. You are in the spirit since the spirit of the living God dwells in you. Anyone who doesn't have the spirit doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of the sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit that dwells in you. So we are not debtors to the flesh, to our own strength, to live according to the flesh in our own ability. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the spirit you put the deeds that put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all of you who are led by the spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received a spirit of adoption when we cry, Abba, Father. It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If in fact we suffer with him, we may also be glorified with him. So Jesus fulfills the law. He sets us free from the law of sin and death. 
He no longer makes it about our own strength and our own ability. He does not set down a new law for us to strive to achieve. He does not give a new moral standard that we have to work really hard to obtain. Jesus gives us instead his righteousness and his life and his spirit to dwell in our hearts and bodies. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, I will sprinkle water on you and then you will be clean from all your unrighteousness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you and remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and make you follow my statutes and be careful to observe all my ordinances. The good news of the new covenant is not that we have to work really hard to achieve a new standard but that God puts his life and his spirit and his heart in us to conform us to his image, to transform us into his image. So the good news is that it is not our efforts that justify us. It is Jesus Christ. But is there still judgment in light of this good news? Is there still judgment? And I think the answer to that is yes. As we look at Revelation 20, we get this image of Jesus returning and the fact that there is still judgment in the new covenant. Revelation 20, starting in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and the one who sat on it the earth and the heaven fled before his presence, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And also another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. And the sea gave up its dead, and death and Hades gave up their dead, and all were judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So wait a minute, Dave. <clears throat> you just said it's not your actions that justify you. It is Jesus that justifies you in his actions. But here it says... I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. The history books of heaven were open. Every deed has been recorded. Every deed that every person has ever done is recorded in heaven. And it is seen. Every deed that is ever done by anyone in all of history is seen in heaven. And that is really good news because we have a God who is good and judges evil. And so all the evil that has been perpetrated against everyone throughout the course of history is recorded and seen. The secret harm, the secret harm will be exposed and dealt with. The secret pain will be exposed and dealt with. That our God sees it all and will deal with it all. It is good news. But it says the, books of, the history books of heaven were opened and the dead were judged according to their works as recorded in the books. So hang on, this says our actions matter, that God actually holds us accountable for our actions. And what it says here is that everyone 
whose names were not written in the book of life ended up being judged and did not get to enter eternal life. But those whose names were written in the book of life were saved. So what's interesting is that like when you're keeping accounts, talk about the books of your company. And when we put our trust in Jesus, we get a new, our name in a new book and we get access to a new ledger when we are in Jesus and when he is in us and exchange happens. It's not only our death for his life, but it is also our sins for his righteousness and that his righteousness comes off of his books and gets placed on ours. And our sinfulness and our deeds that we have done are literally forgiven and expunged from our record and placed onto the books of Jesus Christ where he pays for them and removes them from us. And so there's two things from this that are really important. One is that everything is seen. And the second thing, and everything is accounted for. And that God will bring justice in all of this. In all of history, God will account and bring justice. And that he extends forgiveness to his people. That our efforts alone, no matter how much we do, we can't account for all the injustice in the world. Because we see from Amos that God cares about individual sin and places where we screw up ourselves. But he also cares about corporate sin. And he cares about the sins of nations. And that he holds nations accountable for their corporate sin. And I know enough from history and from current events that we are culpable, no matter what our culture is, for all sorts of corporate evils that are perpetrated today in our society. There's racial injustice. There is literal economic injustice. I've read an expose about chocolate as we're getting ready for Thanksgiving. And literally, child slavery is rampant in the chocolate industry. And so the cheap chocolate that's handed out to my kids on Halloween, likely some of that was produced by exploitation of children. It's tantamount. It is slavery. It's just hidden from us. There is so much injustice in this world. And how can my trying a little bit harder and screwing up a little bit less, how does that account for massive injustice? It doesn't. But what does is Jesus Christ, that he accounts for the injustice, that he bears it in his body, that he takes on the effects of the curse from unrighteous living and bears it himself. and gives us his righteousness instead. Which is really good news. It is really liberating good news. But the question that I have that comes out of that then is do our actions actually matter? If our good deeds will never save us, why do any good deeds at all? If it's all Jesus' record, then so what? Right? Like, I put my faith in him. I can kick back and receive fire insurance. I'm not going to go in the lake because, you know, I've got his righteousness. So do our deeds matter at all? Do the justice that we pursue in this life, does it actually matter? And I want to give an emphatic, yes, it matters. If you turn to Revelation 3, we're going to look at Revelation 3.1. 
And here Jesus is writing letters to his churches and admonishing or encouraging them. And in 3.1, it says, I know of your works, that you have a reputation of being alive, but you're actually dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is on the point of death, for I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Remember that when you received and he- what you received and heard, obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come. Yet you have still a few persons in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes, and they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. If you conquer, you will be clothed like them in white robes, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. I will confess your name before my Father and before his angels. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is so critical. He says your actions actually matter. Because your actions point to whether you are alive in Christ or not. He is accusing the church in Sardis of having the reputation of being alive. Of having a reputation of having the Spirit of God at work in them. Of having a reputation of participating in God's restoration. But accuses them of being asleep and actually dead. Having the form of godliness, but no holiness. Having the form of righteousness, but no justice. Looking the part, but not acting the part. And James tells us that faith without works is dead. That it is not actually faith in Jesus Christ if his life isn't present and his life isn't manifesting through your body, in your actions, in your relationships. It's not actually alive. See this in 1 Thessalonians 5. There's this admonition again. He says, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers and sisters, you don't need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When they say there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them. As labor pains will come upon a pregnant woman, there will be no escape. But you, beloved, are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are children of the light of day, and we are not of the night or of darkness. Then let us not fall asleep as others do, but let us keep awake and sober. For those who sleep at night... For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober and put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through Jesus Christ. For who died for us so that when, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live with him. Therefore, let us encourage one another and build one another up as indeed you are doing. We cannot grieve the spirit. We cannot shut down or extinguish the work of Jesus Christ. We cannot go back to sleep and obstinately disobey the command and heart of God towards justice. If God is alive in you, And he will be leading you towards righteousness and justice. And our hope, 
Our hope is found in Jesus Christ. Back to Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, firstborn in all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He is beyond before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, so that... He might come to have first place in all things. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once estranged and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death so as to present you as holy and blameless and irreproachable before him, provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in faith without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven." And then he goes on later and he says in 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this glorious mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all energy that he powerfully inspires within me. Our hope is Christ in us. That is our hope of glory. And when Christ is present in you, it is he who leads us out into justice. It is he who leads us out into reconciliation with one another. It is he who leads us out to be conduits of his kingdom, conduits of his righteousness, of his life, of his peace, and of his joy. It is his life that flows out of us. It says, out of the hearts of believers, streams of living water will flow. That we are to be saturated in the life of God, surrendered to the life of God, so that his life and his wisdom and his works can flow forth from our lives. What I don't want to see here at Campus House is a community of people who are trying hard to be marginally better. I don't want us to be a community of people who are trying hard to sin slightly less. That's not what we are called to be. We are called to be radically filled with the life of Jesus Christ. We are called to be consumed by his love, consumed by his joy, consumed by his wisdom, and to be sources of life for the world that is perishing around us. I want to see people walking with Jesus, bringing that life to bear in their families, in their relationships, in their friendships being a source of encouragement to those who are hurting, a voice of life to those who are considering ending their own, a voice of, of encouragement and care and reconciliation, contending for the health of their families and the salvation of their loved ones. But I also want to see us a people who are carrying the love and power of Jesus and his love for justice and righteousness into every sphere of society. I talked to a girl after the first service who was like, this is amazing, because I said, what, like, can we carry his life into our classroom and realize that his justice matters everywhere, not just in some spiritual realm? 
And she said, I sat here and realized my class matters. I'm in a class where I'm learning about supply chain logistics for hospitals in Africa. And like that actually matters to God because it is a matter of justice to bring health care because it's not right for moms to die because they don't have access to basic medicine. And so that we can be conduits of God's life, conduits of his justice, conduits of his healing care to people all over the place. As I was praying about this this morning, I was convinced that there are people at Purdue now who can be a conduit of the justice of God, that there are people at Purdue now who will discover cures for diseases, who will have innovative plans with business that will bring about prosperity for people groups. Maybe there are people here who will advocate for systemic reform to end the injustice in our prisons. Maybe there are people here who will have innovative ideas that bring about flourishing for nations. And so the call is not a group of people trying hard to be marginally better, but to be a people inhabited by the living God, inspired by his love and his justice and his great resources to carry that into every sphere of society and to help participate in the restoration that he longs to bring to participate in his restoration yeah he establishes and he plants us and he sticks us securely in his kingdom but then he lets us and inspires us and calls us out to establish others in that and to establish his justice in places where it is needed So how do we respond today? What do we actually do with this? I think there's three responses that make sense today. The first one is if your life is not secure in Jesus Christ, if you are depending on your own efforts, your own flesh to be a marginally better person, if your primary concern in eternity is your resume of good works, then we have a problem. Because it is not how marginally better than other people we are. It's not how the good outweighs the evil in our own lives. That's not of primary concern. What is of primary concern is what is liberating us from the curse of participating in evil and perpetrating evil. It's not weighing the scales of like, oh, I kind of screwed up here and I kind of did that. No, no, we're participating in perpetrating evil. And our good works can't atone for that. But Jesus did. And so if you have not entrusted your past to Jesus, if you have not entrusted your future to him, if you have not received his healing and forgiveness for the sin that we participate in and perpetrate, then today is a great day to say, Lord, I'm sorry. Would you give me your righteousness in place of my sinfulness? Would you give me your life in exchange for my death? Here is my crumpled, dirty resume. Can I have your righteousness? And for those of us who have already trusted our lives to Jesus, I think it's very easy for us to fall back into a mentality that somehow our own effort is what makes our lives okay with him. 
That somehow it's about how hard I work, how hard I strive, how much I lean in to doing what I think is right. We accidentally fall back into a law of flesh where we try to do it ourselves and we try to make our own way. And today's a great day to say, Lord, I'm sorry. I want what you want, not what I think you want. I want your life, not my best attempt at my life. I want your resources. I want your spirit to guide me and lead me into what it is that you're calling me to do. And I think the third response is that God chooses to bring his kingdom restoration through people like us. People who are members of his body and in communion with him. He brings his kingdom restoration through us. So I would, I'm going to give you guys time in a minute to ask the Lord specifically that you would be a channel of his justice that you would be a channel of his righteousness, of his peace and reconciliation, that he would give you a specific vision of how he wants to bear his life out through your actual life, whether it's encouraging a friend or devoting yourself to a class or taking a risk somewhere or taking a step of obedience or giving something up or away, that he would give you direction in what it looks like for you to be a conduit of his kingdom and justice. So, Lord Jesus, thank you that you are a God of justice. Thank you that you are a God that cares intimately about justice and that you are a God who is at work bringing justice in this world, that you are at work doing that. And thank you that you will bring about justice in the end of history. God, would you help us to partner with you in bringing that justice? Would you help us to be conduits? Would you just blow our mind? Would you just blow out the frame and the box that we put you in to say that you're what we do on Sunday morning and I can check the box and that's okay? You are the God of the universe and you want to inhabit and bring about justice and change and righteousness and revelation and knowledge everywhere on earth. You have plans for each one of us that are so far beyond what we fathom, Lord. Would you forgive us for being so small-minded and putting you in a box? Would you overwhelm the box that we've placed you in? Would you fill and inhabit our hearts and our minds and our bodies, our studying and our roommating and our being a son or a daughter? Would you just blow out the framework? And not let our conception of you be a limitation on what you want to do. God, would we not focus on on ourselves so much, but would you help us to look at you and realize that it is all things are possible through you, Jesus. And you are in us. Your spirit dwells within us. That's what you give us when you make us come alive, when you regenerate us. You put your very spirit in us so that we can bring about your justice, so that we can participate in your plans. God, I ask that you would give a fresh release of the awareness of your spirit in these people. God, that you would come and fill this room, that you would fill these people anew and afresh with the reality of the living God. 
God, that we would find ourselves letting your life spill over all the time, God, that your life would would saturate us and quench the thirsts and wash away the questions and the iniquities of our past, that your life would bubble up and cleanse all that, Lord. But that we'd find ourselves this week just letting your life, watching your life spill out of our lives. That you would give us new thoughts when we're in class and new thoughts when we're at work and new ways of caring for people and new ways of advocating for justice and new ways of bringing healing and reconciliation to people. Would you do that this week? Would you do that for the rest of our lives? Do you let us walk with you? Full of you? watching you bring your life to bear to those around us. Oh, to grace, how-